0: Welcome to another episode of the Stoic Creative Broadcast, where the art of living and the creative process converge. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of the Stoic Creative Handbook, available now on Amazon. Visit thestoiccreative.com to download the free chapters and get guided and get going right away. Let's meet today's guest. Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to the broadcast. Please introduce yourself to our audience and share a project that you're currently working on or excited about.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm Seth Godin. I'm an author and a blogger and entrepreneur. I've written a bunch of books and been translated into many languages. I blog every day. And currently, we're working on the marketing seminar, which goes live tomorrow, and uh, the old MBA, which continues pace. And then I make a ruckus in my spare time. (laughs)
0: Well, you have certainly been doing that. Um, and so maybe since the is the marketing
1: seminar, your, your most recent project. It is the most recent project, given that it's tomorrow. That's even in the future tomorrow. Yes. Right. And so,
0: uh, as a, as somebody that's was enrolled in the first edition of the, the marketing seminar, you make an assertion in that seminar that we are all marketers. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit and explaining what you mean by that?
1: Well, there are certainly some people who just do what they are told, who seek to make no change in the universe and want to comply to fit all the way in. Those people are not marketers. But the people who read my blog, or the people who use the internet to do original work, or the people who write or to raise money for charity, or who try to weave together connection to make things better, we're all marketers because what we do is we try to make change happen. We try to persuade another human being to listen to us, to trust us, and to take action. And that happens to be my definition of marketing.
0: And an important component of that is knowing what it is that you're, what, you're what, what is what you're doing for, who is it for, and what the change that you seek to make. These are kind of catchphrases that uh, kind of permeate your writing. Um, how, do you, how, how do you help people dial those things in?
1: Well, let's start by understanding why we wouldn't have them, right? I mean, if you want to go out for chicken wings, you don't keep driving around randomly and hope you bump into a place that has chicken wings. You find out where Duff's Anchor Bar or whatever is, and you go there, right? It's intentional. Yet, when it comes time to craft our novel or write our song or raise money for a nonprofit or whatever it is, suddenly we get all wishy-washy. And we say, well, what do you want? And what does the market want? And maybe I should have some focus groups and I'll do it later. And I'm not sure. and I'm not quite. Because deep down, we're afraid. We're either afraid of failure or success. Uh, Failure because if we fail, we believe we've wasted a whole bunch of people's trust and effort. And if we succeed, because then we're on the hook. We've made a promise and we have to keep it because then we might be an imposter. So between the two rocks of failure and success, we have a shot at actually making something. But we're not gonna find it by mistake, it's not an accident. We ought to be willing to care enough to say it on purpose, to to say, yes, I'm trying to make this change from this to this. And I'm amazed at how many people who call themselves professionals are unable to do that. I'll give you the tiniest little example. If you're the receptionist at an orthopedic surgeon's office, what is the change you seek to make? Well, if you're a bad one, a lousy one, an amateur one, you say, my job is with the least amount of effort to make people go away. If you, on the other hand, are a professional, you might say, well, I'm the placebo effect in this building. I'm the person who looks other people in the eye, who makes them feel welcome, who gives them the hope and belief that maybe, just maybe, they came to the right doctor, and she's going to help make them actually better. That there is plenty of evidence that surgery goes better if you like the receptionist. That's me. I get to be that professional. I'm going to do it on purpose. And too often, that's not true. And I saw that firsthand this morning. Too many people have been pushed by the systems around them to give up or to become a wandering generality or to phone it in or to worse, be negative about the whole process. And I think that's a waste
0: in in linchpin you kind of talked about how linchpin seems to me to be a book about how to be a leader even when you don't necessarily have position or authority uh and icarus deception which i think is the book that comes after that you talk a lot about trying th- th- that our that our safety zone or comfort zone is no longer really safe and that we have to start stretching ourselves and pushing towards the edges and a lot of that seems to be built around your definition of what art is and what an artist is. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit?
1: Sure and you know you and I have talked about this a bunch and uh, I think that we're on the same track. Uh, Art is not painting. I hope we can agree on that. There are painters in Dauphin, China for example, who paint over and over again the same painting. They're not artists. And yet there are artists who don't work with oil or clay or words that I would argue that a talented surgeon is an artist when she is engaging with another human being in a way that makes change happen. And so my definition of art is when you do something risky, something that maybe hasn't been done before, something that might not work, where you do it with and for another person seeking to make a positive change, that's art. It might not work and being comfortable enough just to say it might not work is the difference between an artist and say an engineer an engineer must say this will work that's why we hired them
0: it's really interesting and so a lot of what you're saying seems to be uh, involved being very intentional about what we're what we're doing and why we're doing it but also kind of checking in with our motivation uh is that a fair is that a fair
1: assessment that's right and so if your motivation is i need to be liked by everyone i will be judged by my one star reviews then i think you have to accept the fact that you are not an artist that you are seeking to be an engineer that art is never for everyone uh, i regularly have people roll their eyes when i talk about jackson pollock but i was stunned that the woman i was talking to was A graphic artist who rolled her eyes about Jackson Pollock. That's enough to make someone drink himself to death. That you put your best thing into the world, something that transforms the way millions of people think. And yet, 50 years later, there's still a lot of people who don't get it. That's Mm -hmm. the life.
0: So, One of the things that came out of my experience with the marketing seminar was we put together a mastermind. There's six of us that have been meeting every week since the marketing seminar was still underway in August, and we've all taken a turn being in the hot seat and sharing our project. That group has been immensely helpful in helping me deliver the project that I shared with you.
1: Love that.
0: Um, And there's a a member of of that group that I want to ask a question on her behalf because she's going to be in the hot seat again this week. She has shared that she is involved in a project and she's getting a little discouraged about the amount of traction that she's getting. She's launching webinars and um, getting very few signups and then fewer still that are showing up. But in terms of conversion rate, she's, she's getting more, she's getting about 10% of those that say they're going to come actually coming. And I'm asking this question so that she can hear it from you because you said this to me just a couple weeks ago when I was saying, well, my book has only been has only sold 30 copies. And you said something to me that was profoundly uh, powerful and, uh, and empowering. So what would you say to somebody that feels like they're not making the kind of dent that they wish they could make in the universe with their project?
1: Well, I want to let you go first. Tell me what you heard. What's resonating with you?
0: Well, what you said was, you know, fantastic. That's 30 people that before you launched your book you weren't connected with that you can now collaborate. And th- you gave me this incredible piece of advice, which was um, since it's a, an ebook and it is possible to keep revising, that I can bring in my readers into the revision process, ask them to give me feedback or criticism or post questions or make comments and then make revisions in response to actual uh, reader feedback. And I thought that was... I thought that was brilliant.
1: <laughs> well, it's true. That, let, me, um, let me make a really clear distinction here. What we know is that every artist who matters is disrespected at first. Everyone. A failure in their own time. And you cannot let that turn into a failure in your own mind. The second thing is that the media makes it easier and easier to be seen but harder and harder to close the sale. So I was on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine a while ago. And in the week, the two weeks that it was on the newsstand, I think I sold 10 more books, maybe 20. So if that's what you're hoping for, if I could just get onto the cover of some magazine, then everything will be fine. It's not how it works. And so that's what we cover in the marketing seminar, the smallest possible audience, not the largest possible audience. How can I make it so that 30 people will have their lives changed? Because if you can actually change the lives of 30 people, you get to do it again. You get to do it for their friends or their colleagues. You've earned some trust. 30 is a lot. And too often, we conflate how many people went through the funnel with how good am I? And they're not related, other than did you build a good funnel? But that's not what your work is. Your work is did you make uh, an enterprise? That changed people. So I am uh, really careful with Alt MBA and the marketing seminar to not treat them like fast internet things. That just because anyone can build something online, anyone is building something online, so there's a lot of crap and there's a lot of noise and people are understandably either running around like they're at a buffet trying everything or skeptical of everything. And we saw the same thing happen If you look at the books of the 1910s and 20s or when paperbacks came out, most of the paperbacks in the 30s and 40s were trash, total trash, no one wanted to read them then and no one wants to read them now. Just because you can put something in the world doesn't mean you should. So let's turn it around the other way. If you should put something in the world, please do, but please also understand that most people will not know better than to associate it with all the trash that's around it. We have to be really patient and build our institutions accordingly because it's not going to take a week or a month. You know, it took me, I've been doing this blogging thing for now 25 years, and it probably took 12 before I was an overnight success. (laughs) Drip by drip by drip, thousands and thousands of posts. And everyone says, well, sure, you're Seth Godin. Well, I wasn't Seth Godin for the first 3,000 posts. I'm only Seth Godin now. So you're going to have to show up. It's the only way.
0: It's interesting because... So often, even though we wouldn't say this to ourselves, it we find ourselves until I took the marketing seminar and until I would participate in the Alt MBA. Um, I wouldn't have said this then, but I think I can say it now looking back. It was more, it seemed like I was chasing celebrity, even though I didn't think I was chasing celebrity, I, I was chasing the likes and the attention and uh, that sort of thing. And the marketing seminar was what really crystallized it for me was your message of drilling down to the smallest. Niche group that you could possibly get down to and finding the fewest people that you could truly engage with in a collaborative process of sharing your work and then getting feedback and then continuing to develop work that that audience wants. And part of that seems to be that if you are truly and authentically engaged with a small group of people, then you are going to encourage this other thing that you talk about which is virality or or sneezeability, um you want to just share a thought on that
1: yeah i guess you know you could be denny's or you could be dorothy's and in san francisco there's a place for breakfast called dorothy's and if you don't get there at 701 in the morning you're not going to get a table until eight and it's filled with people who know each other who like each other it had i found it because it has such extraordinary Yelp followings, but the three people I've had breakfast with over the years, each said before I suggested it, oh, why don't we go to Dorothy's? That people like us go to a place like this. Now, Denny's sells average food for average people, and they sell way more eggs every day than Dorothy's does. That's not the question. The question is, do you want to be Denny or do you want to be Dorothy? Which is the life you want to live? And you should build a place that can sustain you. So if you need a private jet, don't build Dorothy's because Dorothy's never going to have a private jet. But if you want the sustenance that you get feeding a group of people who want to be fed, whether it's ideas or food, that's the way to do it. That this idea that you should get bigger because you can get bigger. I don't know who wrote that down, but it doesn't make sense to me.
0: Yeah. and, And I mean, again, coming back to the point made earlier, it's if you die, if you get your motivation and your intention right first, that's, Seems to be what can fuel you through whether it's the dip or just just the long haul, the twelve years that it takes Seth Godin to become Seth Godin, or the 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 year that it takes to write a book, or whatever it is. You, if your if your motivation and your intentions are correct, it just seems to be a lot easier to make it through that. Which is, I make the assertion in in my handbook that. Uh, struggling creatives are driven by passion and thriving artists are driven by purpose. And it's that idea of really dying. Yeah. Thank you. Um, So just to dive into your story, just a little bit more. So during that 12 year period, what was your fuel? What kept you going? What kept you pitching books after you got your 900th rejection? What kept you going? And maybe also if you could build into that, you, you, the arc of your work, what you have done has kind, has changed over time, but in some ways I see continuity in what you are seeking to, to do and that you're seeking to make in the universe. So first, what, what fuels your work and then um, how has that arc kind of unfolded?
1: Something shifted for me probably the third year I was a book packager, so I must have been 87 or 88. And I came to the conclusion that this was something I get to do, not something I have to do. Because I knew I could get a li- make a living as a bank teller. I knew I could make a living. I, I got a freelance gig to tide me over doing a 20 page spreadsheet for a series of nursing homes that were being acquired. I knew I could do that and not starve to death. So, if, sorry, that's the local fire department. Okay. If I was going to uh, do this, I should take the posture of, wow, what a privilege. I get to mail out a book proposal and maybe just maybe someone will buy it. I get to uh, write something on my blog and maybe, just maybe, someone will read it. But I'm writing it because I get to write it, not because someone's going to get to read it. And over time, that habit became priceless to me. And I write the blog every day, mostly for me. Uh, I'm thrilled when it resonates with someone, but I love that I have the chance to do it. And having that attitude takes all the pressure off the other person. And now I'm giving them the freedom to make the decision they want to make. So if someone comes to me and says, I've read a thousand year your blog posts and never read a book. I'm like, fine, that's okay. Because I'm not here to sell books. I'm here to change minds.
0: uh, So I love the attitude of gratitude, which is, Uh, My book is obviously brings in a lot of principles and practices from the ancient philosophy of Stoicism, which actually has as one of its primary practices to begin your day expressing gratitude for the very most simple things that you have in life. And that could be as simple as running water, as shelter, as clothes. Um, In fact, it encourages you to focus on those very, very basic needs and not so much all the extraneous and unnecessary things that we are the shiny things that we're so often um, chasing after, and so I love that uh, that line. That, that it's a, the work that we do is a privilege that that and and that anybody would listen is something to be grateful for. And so, since I brought up um, ancient uh, wisdom, and I I know that I'm going to get her, I'm going to not get her name right, but I know that you are friendly with Pima Children. Is that the
1: correct name? I think she doesn't mind how you say it. She's okay. never told me one way or the other because we've okay. actually chatted. Uh, I say Pema, but who knows?
0: Okay, so um, I, I know you have an interest in her work, uh, and I'm just curious if if there's any um, ph- philosophical underpinning, ancient or otherwise, to that that seeps its way into your worldview, into your mindset, and into the work that you do.
1: Well. You know, I've had so many highlights in my career, but certainly one of the public ones was writing the foreword for her last book. Um, Pema has a lot to say about mindfulness and about dropping the narrative. And so there's a 5,000, 7,000 year old tradition that I think is worthy of its longevity. We have a narrative about so many things. We love to say, there they go again. But that narrative is just a weight. It's not helping us. That if we accept what we see as what we see, then we get to decide what to do with it. And if what we decide to do with it is fret and freak out, well, that's a choice, but you don't have to. Not everyone frets and freaks out when they see the world. So if fretting and freaking out isn't helping you, why not begin the end of that and instead bring curiosity you know my my friend cat has pointed out you can't be angry and curious at the same time
0: <laughs> fantastic well it's interesting as i've uh kind of reacquainted myself with my my childhood love of stoicism and uh position and, and investigate eastern traditions like buddhism and whatnot there's some, even even in religious traditions, there's really so much of it is is built around some very, very similar ideas. And a primary one for mindfulness is um, practicing what Viktor Frankl said, uh, which his quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a pause. That, that when things happen that are outside of our control, even though our knee-jerk reaction or our immediate reaction might be too get angry, get to, to despair, to get frustrated. We have an opportunity to pause for a minute and hold it away from ourselves and decide what we do next, which is really the only thing we have control of. And the mindfulness thing is just seems to be uh, such a crucial thing. And it, and it seems as though the modern world is trying harder and harder to take that away from us. Um, and so... As we're wrapping up, because I want to be respectful of your time, and we did say a half hour, today is September 11th, and um, especially in your uh, neck of the woods, this is um, a day that we reflect on, and and it it was a, a pivotal moment in our country's history, but really in the world's history. But you have made, in several interviews, a really powerful point that I wish you would make again here on this day, and that is the world has never been a safer place to be in. Can you share, share your thoughts on that as we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I I want to be careful not to conflate today with that. Uh, people I know people I care about their friends and relatives were hurt physically, emotionally. It was a big deal. I watched it out the window of my office and there are wounds there. And my heart goes out to everybody whose wounds are worse than mine. Um, and, you know, so many things about it were um, terrifying, in the proper sense of that word. But many of the things that happened after it um, have been pawns, the tools of the industrial complexes that want to use it to sell more commercials or get more votes. And I don't have any patience for that whatsoever. And. The riff you're talking about comes from Steve Pinker and it's pretty simple. Uh, 500 years ago, you didn't know what was going on in the next village. And then someone figured out they could make a living telling you that things were bad in the next village. And once we got used to that, then it was in the next county. And once electronic media showed up every single day, there is an endless list of all the things that are falling apart and the people who have cancer and the folks who are dying too young and the skirmishes and the wars, that it's very easy to believe as almost everyone does that the world is significantly more dangerous and uh, that we are significantly less well off than we have ever been. And in fact, the opposite is true that you have a greater chance of being killed by a deer than by a terrorist and that life expectancies are higher, that the level, the number percentage, not the number, but the percentage of people who don't have enough to eat is the smallest in the history of the world. That doesn't mean we should be complacent. It's the opposite. It means we should realize that we have the resources to do something about the people who don't have enough, that we should do something about inequity and people not treated with dignity, that we should, there's plenty of room. So we ought to treat people who don't look like us better because it's not like they're gonna take our slot. And when we are uh, try, when people try to manipulate us by becoming hysterical, by calling a TV show the Situation Room as if every day is a situation, by sending us an email six times a day about breaking news. Well, if the news is breaking every day six times a day, it's not breaking news, it's just news. I think what we have to do, as you pointed out, is add a little bit of time between stimulus and response. And not waste this moment. Because wasting this moment with our hands in our head, freaking out, keeps us from doing something generous. Keeps us from doing something where we get to use our curiosity and our creativity to make a difference. And I feel really strongly that we are doing everyone around us a disservice. Yeah, if there's a a burning building and you can save someone, please do. But if there's a burning building three miles away, I don't need to hear about it because I can't do anything and neither can you. Let's work on fireproofing materials instead.
0: Yeah, and so just to be clear, I certainly would never want to um, diminish the importance or the significance of what happened that day, but you made such a profound point, point. thank you for making it about, we all made choices about what happens next after that moment, and of course, uh, I think most of us, and, and you, you speak to this point so often, uh, empathy is the primary response which and situations like that should make us more connected and more caring and uh and and they're they're not opportunities um as so often happens for manipulation we see this not just with current events but um, all over the internet you can decide to make to connect with sincere authentic care or you can make uh, decide that you want to connect in a transactional, manip- manipulative way.
1: Exactly.
0: Fantastic. Seth, I cannot thank you enough um, for your time here today and for putting up with our little glitch and getting oh, started. All good.
1: Thank you for doing this work. It's very generous.
0: Seth Godin, thank you so much for your generosity for being here and for all the great work that you do. Thank you, sir. Thanks for tuning in to the Stoic Creative Podcast. If you're still with us, we appreciate your time and attention. You can help ensure the continued development and delivery of this broadcast. Simply visit thestoiccreative.com and click on the Fuel tab in the upper right-hand corner, then decide what to do next. Now, go and share your best work with those that need it, and we'll see you next time.